What's up, everyone? Welcome to Destination Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. Nath and Steph and Kieran are away. I'll let you come up with your own humorous reasons as to why they aren't here. But I'm delighted to be joined by friend of the show, Dr. Paul O'Connell. Paul teaches law at SOAS. He is, well, you've got a lot a lot of hats, Paul. You know, you've been in... I have, I have no hair. I need all the hats. <laughs> the, you know, the Political Education Project, you know, the Beehive in Manchester, prolific writer on sort of aspects of Marxism and, and law. You're involved in like the, the left campaign, which is sort of like the left exit campaign for around the EU. And, you know, just an all-around all good egg. And if you didn't listen to it, Paul gave his predictions for 2021 the start of 2021 and i've just listened to it on the commute the last few days and scarily accurate i thought in an obviously very depressing way so we, we may as well get get started just to revisit some of those predictions you know you said that like bidenism was going to be like this damp squib where he was going to be totally strangled in the institutions of power and not going to be able to do anything and that you know that has, has happened almost yeah. to a t really how would you characterize the biden presidency thus far so I think strangled, but also like a, a willing strangling victim. You know what I mean? In the sense that that Biden as a yeah exactly like Biden as a political uh, entity or as a political animal uh, had no real um, desire to do that and more radical. And I, I don't know if we mentioned it in the last one, but there was a piece that um, Mike Davis wrote back in two. I can't remember when it was when 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 the primary the Democratic primary was between Clinton and Obama and Obama yeah. won it. And and Mike Davis made the simple point that the fact that the American ruling class is comfortable with either a woman or a black man in power isn't a sign of progress. It shows how secure the American ruling class is. And since then, it's just become more secure. Um. So again, I'm sure people know this. And and you don't you don't need sort of me or anyone else to tell them. But the every year Credit Suisse, which is a, a financial firm in, based in Switzerland, and also Oxfam and various sort of produce reports on growing inequality. And every year that inequality has worsened. Uh, and the OECD also produced a report last year on protests around the world, and they made similar points that this growth in inequality, this increasing concentration of wealth at the tiny one percent of the one percent is at the direct expense of workers because that's how capitalism works you know wealth is extracted from workers and so if people are getting wealthier it's because others are getting qualitatively poorer and so in america and elsewhere all around the world with some minor honorable exceptions um capital has entrenched its position the ruling classes have entrenched their positions uh labor density so trade union density and membership in trade unions has declined militancy of trade unions has declined and so in terms of having an alternative to the status quo, it doesn't exist in the social milieu. So when Biden came in saying, I'll be better than Trump, right? Well, that's not hard because Trump was abysmal to begin with. Um, but basically what you got is you got effectively for all intents and purposes, the same policies across a whole range of issues, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's uh, tax, whether it's distribution of wealth, whether it's immigration. Uh, actually, at the moment in the US, the Biden government is in court defending Trump era uh, immigration policy because the Biden government is continuing those policies. So you get basically the same policies because there was no major serious political alternative. Like um, the, the Sanders campaign was the inkling of a potential slight yeah. alternative to it and once that was defeated well that was it you know and that was like the, the democratic party absorbed that sort of minor challenge from the left um and so yeah what biden has done has been entirely foreseeable you know he's definitely i suppose i mean if you if you want to get into the language of evil he's probably the lesser evil between him and yeah. trump in, in terms of sort of individuals i don't know <laughs> i can't really say but, but in terms of the substantive politics you look at what's happening in ukraine you look at the response to covid uh you 
you look at um, what Robert Brenner and others have written about the the sort of transfer, massive transfer of wealth into trillions, uh, all overseen by the Biden government, the policies have stayed just the same. And yeah. unfortunately, it was entirely, you know, foreseeable. We'll get on to like performative naivety in a bit, but, you know, people were like Biden hasn't instituted like Medicare for all because he ran on a specific platform. That he wouldn't do it. And, you know, he's just why are people shocked? What was interesting, I thought, just just briefly, is that I think, you know, we talked briefly on the last one and, you know, a lot of people have written about it is that, you know, we are in some ways in like the death knells of like the era of progressive neoliberalism, which is always like this weird, like passive revolution, you know, across the world that is collapsing and authoritarian, like right wing governments are sort of taking hold because people just hate that uh, progressive neoliberal sort of consensus. Yeah. Uh, well, because it's just left everyone left everyone behind. Is Biden like this? It's just what like the the rump, the tail end of tail end of it because there was nothing, there was nothing else left. I see it in the same way that when Macron was elected, you know, all the British liberals were like, "This is fantastic." Yeah. And yeah. all people said was like, "Well, all this is doing is just paving the way for Le Pen." You know, it was like you're just putting off. Yeah. Um, and that's how I sort of certainly see the election of of Biden. I think the underlying issues are going to continue wearing under the surface. I think preparing the ground for something a lot worse. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, one, one of the things to bear in mind is that in in the overall, in terms of aggregate numbers, Trump got more votes this time around than he got in the yeah, previous. Yeah, he got eight election. million, eight million more, I think. Yeah. So, so in terms of that, in terms of like how it appeals to the electorate, um, I think that there is an element of that. I think it's it's still competing sort of perspectives on on sort of what acceptable forms of governance and domination look like, and in some way, there's probably parallels with uh, Johnson in Britain at the moment. So, like uh, Johnson being the sort of Trump. Trump-esque character in Britain, which is that um, there's an idea amongst the ruling classes of what a respectable level of managerialism looks like, and Macron is the sort of ideal, you know, figure, you know, yeah, well suited, well well cleaned, uh, everything else. And so, so with with Trump being ousted and Trump being overthrown, that was a choice, I think, because again, another important point is that American politics is so captured by money and so captured by the ruling classes that effectively Trump and Biden was also a conflict between different factions of, of American yeah. capital. So so Trump definitely represented in, in the first instance uh, much more directly the interests of sort of fossil fuels, the interests of short term yeah. extraction, the interests of uh, large uh, property owners and, and sort of real estate owners and so forth. And, and then lots of other sectors of it, whereas the Biden section of the Democrats have always been much more aligned with the more internationalist elements of US capital, the more sort yeah. of outward looking elements of US capital. So there was that element to it. Um, but in terms of the end of progressive neoliberalism, I think, yeah, I think there's, there's an important thing going on there. And it, it links back to politics here and in Britain as well, thinking about, you know, how we build alternatives and, and new labour and so forth, which is that when, when neoliberalism was in the ascendant uh, or, or rather in its sort of uh, midpoint from the sort of uh, mid to late 90s onwards, there was this sort of you know, unpre- not unprecedented, but sort of um, temporary and transient period of economic boom fueled by credit and fueled by new technologies. And that's been hollowed out and been in decline for the last 10 years, at least. You know, it's been it's been kept on a sort of life support machine by quantitative easing post 2008, again, by state interventions following the pandemic. So it's been kept on a sort of artificial life system. But the actual 
economic structures that allowed for some modest forms of redistribution uh, throughout the 90s and the early 2000s have disappeared and and capital operating on its standard short-term logic is pursuing as much wealth as it can but it enters into this fundamental problem then of over accumulation and now there's so much capital accumulated which goes back to this point about inequality that there aren't profitable outlets for it and our democratic structures have become so uh, sort of diminished uh, that the state's default response is to try and police the crisis, is to try and and sort of repress opposition to it. Uh, And so you get then these sort of top-down, heavy-handed responses to anti-austerity movements, the Black Lives Matter, to Extinction Rebellion and groups like that. And then you also get the emergence of, which is, you know, standard enough and and has happened all around the world, sort of snake oil salesmen from the right who are offering people easy answers and easy solutions. But fundamentally, the economics linked to these various groups, whether it's Farage or whoever it might be, aren't in any way substantively different. It's more than fought on the terrain of culture wars and so forth. So yeah, the Biden presidency is the sort of, you know, it's the it's the FDR of the, the angry boards generation. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the it's, it, it's what you get in terms of progressive change in the absence of a serious labor movement and in the absence of the capacity of capital to accommodate serious reforms. I mean, one of the noteworthy things of the the predictions part from you know you made last year was you, know, you said something in that which I thought was maybe possibly a bit controversial when we were talking about like the the rise of like you know, liberalism and like brexit and so on and so forth and you basically said that the people who were the most authoritarian and well, possibly fascistic in society are not like you know the working class who mm-hmm. did brexit or like voted in trump but were actually the mm-hmm. the liberal or professional managerial strata and what's fascinating i think is that like more and more this year through covid i've like massively come around to endorse that view because i've just noticed a, t- a total authoritarianism um based on well like a hatred of the working class you know they can't follow you know the working class don't follow rules we I mean, got you know if they don't listen to experts you know and you know manifest itself in things like the desire for constant lockdown the desire but also like i mean obviously this is in the twitter sphere but you know this like this weird callousness of like like generally seeming to enjoy when like unvaccinated people like die of covid like uh, like genuinely taking it seems to take an enjoyment about it but we were just then talking off air about um you know authoritarian neoliberalism and you're actually working on the fact that across the world now the legal basis for a new era of authoritarianism is actually you know it's becoming enshrined in law so in the uk mm-hmm. it's like the police and crime bill um yeah. and various other bits of legislation can you just speak a bit about the yeah. fact that the, yeah, the actual legal basis of of the of the state is changing so I think it's I think yeah, that that point about the just just very briefly. So I, I'm still I'm sort of old fashioned I suppose. I still use the term petty bourgeois and like I know I know professional managerial classes is it, I've not looked into it enough and I know it's an important category and something to be looked at. But I do still see um, I think of the the sort of um, second referendum marches and so forth uh, that, that took place in in Britain. And what you saw then is um, the the sort of milieu around that is that it's people who are um, Marx has a great line about this that they're, they're they face some of the insecurities of possibly slipping into the working class, which terrifies them, and they aspire are close enough to some level to wealth and and privilege, so they aspire towards that. So they're in this intermediary position, and because of that, they end up being both reactive and reactionary. And so when the Brexit vote happened, um, because it disturbed the sort of natural order of things in terms of access to um, you know relatively affordable holidays and skiing trips and so forth, and uh, you know good quality the camembert or whatever else might be frustrated the reaction was visceral and you saw it sometimes like a 
a lot of it would have been like, well, these people who vote for Brexit shouldn't be allowed to vote. They're too yeah. stupid. Too stupid yeah. to be allowed to vote. And yeah, then edging, sort of, edging quite openly into eugenics. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eugenics, the, very, yeah. the very open stuff then about, well, don't worry, the Brexit voters are going to die off if we can just hang on for another year or two. And sort of gleefully, and so that links up what you were saying about the uh, around vaccines, that the people who haven't been vaccinated, the COVID-idiots, as they, as they call them, yeah. that they deserve to die. And the thing there is, again, I, I, I genuinely, like if I was looking at Britain, I still think that, I think fascism as a term is thrown around too easily and so forth. Yeah, but I, I think what I might have said then was that if I was looking for the sort of potential green shoots of it or the potential inklings of it i'd look at that as a social base that's what would concern me you know and and, and I, I stand by that i still think that that historically and in and, and the contemporary world that they are the social strata which provides the the sort of core or the hard core of any serious authoritarian uh, movement and it's the same in you know in in sort of places like india and the philippines and turkey and so forth it's that same social strata which provides the the basis for these authoritarian groups but on the point about the legal basis shift and so so i um like everybody else i've been or many many people have been involved in the sort of protests against the uh police crime uh secured uh, police crime uh, and courts bill uh, and basically it clearly is an attack on the right to protest unequivocally so um this has been commented on by liberty by the um uh, house of Commons, uh, the joint committee on human rights in parliament by various legal scholars by you know anybody on the un rapporteurs and so forth so it is an a clear and an unambiguous attack on the right to protest. Now, the danger with anything that happens in Britain is British exceptionalism and British myopia has people thinking this is post-Brexit Britain or this is this is Johnson's Britain or this is Tory Britain or this is awful. But actually, if you look at the global picture over the last 15, 20 years, you'll see that this is part of a much longer and much wider trend. Uh, and so uh, there's a wealth of reports out there from, from human rights NGOs, from um, excuse me from un organizations and so forth even the oecd who you wouldn't expect to be you know who are now sort of bastion of radicalism but even the oecd has produced reports on this that there has been over the last 20 years an increase in protests so so not just around covid that's obviously seen a recent spike but even before that there was a measured and a discernible increase in protests right around the world right and that again the, the oecd report that i mentioned for example that that links it to three or four key factors uh, one of them being uh, sort of economic inequality you would have been what they call pressures on the labor force which is that we've seen real wages falling for the last 20 years uh, and sort of inequality growing and instability and uncertainty growing the other two being then the collapse of traditional networks of support and solidarity and also economic uh, um, environmental breakdown so the OECD has identified these as the factors that were producing all these protests even before um, mm. the sort of COVID and everything else so this phenomenon is also seen then right around the world the expansion of state power in how it's in, in relation to the policing of protest and increasing yeah. limitations on the right to protest right through the US Canada South Africa France, Italy, and Britain as well. Now, the interesting thing is that in Britain, uh, the existing legislation, the Public Order Act of 1986, uh, actually allows for massive limitations on the right to protest. So in the strict sense, this new law isn't needed in the sense that the police already have extensive powers to kettle people, to yeah. place restrictions on, on protests in advance, to uh, move people on from particular areas. So there are already extensive powers, which, which in fact have been upheld by both the British Supreme Court and the European Court of Human Rights. Both of them have said that kettling is legit in a form of policing and so forth. So, so, so the police have more than enough power as it exists. So adopting this legislation now, it's about twofold thing. One, strengthening the legal powers of the police, so to give them forward 
Uh, draconian and extensive powers them with the right to protest but second secondly to send out an ideological message as well about what's acceptable and what is permissible yeah and this links back to the sort of bigger crisis that that's unfolding so so capitalism has been in deep structural crisis um if you want to go with isfan mazaros since at least the early 60s uh sorry late 60s early 70s um which has been punctured by brief periods brief bubbles the dot-com bubble the more recent sort of finance fuel bubble and so forth but the system has been in deep structural crisis and in that context states have two choices broadly speaking one of them would be to address the root causes of the crisis which is capital uh, and capital reproduction you know what i mean so so it's it's the, it's the sort of ceaseless pursuit of self-expansion the ceaseless pursuit of profit that is driving climate breakdown that is driving increasing inequality that is driving down with pressure on workers uh, wages and living standards and so forth. that's the root cause of it so one option is to address that in various different ways through socialization of property through public ownership through uh, you know all sorts of interesting policy proposals around reducing the working day and various other things instituting um, you know, universal services. There's a whole range of ways you can do that, but no state will do that. No state because because the state states ultimately respond to the impulses of capital, not not in a sort of simplistic way, although sometimes in a simplistic way, with the Tory government over the last year and a half handing out billions to their donors. Yeah. But even without those specific examples, more generally, the state is there to secure the accumulation of capital. So the state won't respond to this crisis by addressing root causes. So instead, it will respond by policing the responses to the crisis. Mm. So that as we see, then it's not it's not quick incidental that this new legislation was provoked because of the Metropolitan Police's complaints about uh, Extinction Rebellion and about not having sufficient power to respond to Extinction Rebellion. It's not a coincidence that it's the environmental movement, it's the movement that's trying to highlight the like existential threat posed by climate breakdown that is the catalyst for this but more generally it's the state putting down a marker in this context of what will and what will not be accepted and so as we try to get back to normal post-covid protests that disrupt people's ordinary day-to-day lives the ordinary accumulation of capital people going out shopping people going out walking this will not be tolerated and also the political challenge to the system that reproduces these problems will not be allowed to be challenged and so it's one the policing bill is one but also you have to put alongside that the uh, spy cops bill which again enhanced the powers of undercover officers including allowing them to engage in murder rape any number of other crimes the overseas operations bill which reduced the uh, liability of British soldiers who might commit war crimes in other parts of the world and then a range of other legislation is coming forward this year around borders uh, around uh, limiting judicial review and around reform the Human Rights Act. So there's a whole raft of legislation coming in which enhances the coercive authority of the state, but also sends a clear message about what is and isn't acceptable in terms of responses to the crisis. And I think that's key. Um, and again, how this will shape up going forward is, is, is open to debate because, again, the kill the bill process <laughs> has been really good and really promising. Uh, but so far, the sort of broader trade union movement and the sort of broader political left hasn't really cohered around that. It's been a bit more sporadic and a bit more haphazard. And unless we have that coherent movement to challenge that by making the laws unenforceable in a serious, tangible, sustained way, we're going to increase this drift towards an increasingly more authoritarian state form. But again, I think it's important just to stress that this isn't just Britain. It isn't just the Tories being awful. This is part of a global response to the crisis of capitalism and how democratic states around the world are responding to that. I was just thinking about, you know, when the police and crime bill protest happened, it was like a great wave of protest for like a day. 
and then it was like okay back to normal now and it was sort of for me I was a bit symptomatic of of where the left is it was like there's no coherent linking up with you know between the labor movement and the environmental mm-hmm. sort of movement there was no like mass trade union response you could see that in some of the reaction um was it mid or late last year these last two years with covid and everything else everything is just a blur time wise yeah. but with, at least at some point in the last six months or so when insulate britain were engaged in their protests and i think again some of the strategic choices insulate britain made i don't think i would have made i don't think i no. you know, I, I think i would question them i think if i was involved with that campaign I'd, I'd you know i would have perhaps argued against it but you see some sections of the the british left sort of in and around the labor left and so we come out criticized this saying oh this is ridiculous crusties getting out there and people now that's because the impulse there is to appeal to the imagined voter you know who you think the normies are who who you want to win on side to your thing but actually the the labor movement in its totality should be unequivocal in its support for people engaged in protest you know what i mean and so so but it's a basic isn't it it's it's so a basic. basic it should be it should be but again we're at we're at such a low level now you know we're, we're you know we might come on to this in a minute but like we're, we're coming off the back of decades of defeats and, and even the Corbyn period which ended in defeat but even in the midst of it um, it never went beyond sort of electoralism you know and, and even a very sort of joyful electoralism at some points it never went beyond that so in terms of where we're at in terms of trying to rebuild and trying to think through a movement some of these basics aren't understood <laughs> like the basics of supporting the right to protest the basics of never crossing the picket line the basics of a whole variety of things just aren't understood because the movement hasn't hasn't sort of regenerated it hasn't recomposed in a way that has made it common sense even for people who are part of the movement in a, in a broad sense so this brings us on to the principal topic of this well today's part which is you know the Labour Party or, or Labourism mm. in, in particular and obviously it's unbelievably toothless we, we yeah. don't, don't need to spend the part talking about how useless yeah. Keir Starmer is and what he represents because presumably most people who, who listen to the pod already know and are well versed in it you wrote an article in Conta which is a fantastic website slash sort of collective based in Scotland about the pitfalls of Labourism why did you write this article on Conta like mm. now in particular so it, it's something um, I, I kind of kick myself in a way every time I tweet about it because I, I'm so, I get angry at myself for reading so much about Labour and the, and the history <laughs> of the Labour Party and the Labour yes, movement. Yes. But I've spent years, ever since I moved over here, uh, because the Labour Party obviously looms so large, I've spent years sort of engaged in, in sort of socialist and trade union politics here and you can't avoid the Labour Party. So it's something I've been thinking about for a long time and I've been... Um, I have rough drafts of a much longer piece on sort of laborism and trying to think it through today. Um, but what provoked this specific article uh, in Conter was the episode where uh, Tory MP Wakefield uh, crossed the floor and joined the Labour Party and was welcomed with open arms by the PLP, uh, but also by very many people just generally within the Labour Party. And on social media, which again is is never a good barometer of of sort of the, life in general or the world in general, but is useful nonetheless. On on social media, there was a lot of people on the broad Labour left um, engaging in this sort of must become a sort of ritualistic or routinized gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair. And I was like, I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe Starmer's Labour has done this. And well, if they can if they can accept the Tory and then they can restore the whip to Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And and sort of as I saw this unfolding it just struck me again that with, with the labor left in particular how little 
the people on the left of the Labour Party seem to understand of their own party, uh, how little they seem to know about the history of the party, the role that the British Labour Party has played throughout its history um, in government and in opposition, uh, and also of the theory around it. So, so, so the Labourism should be a common concept for anybody involved in left-wing politics in Britain, but particularly anybody around the Labour Party, but it's not. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, this might be a useful point to sort of enter into these ongoing debates about whether or not people should be in the Labour Party, particularly whether socialists should be in the Labour Party. And so I just wrote this short piece just trying to sum up for people what the sort of Sisyphean sort of uh, challenge they've set for themselves by trying to advance socialism in the Labour Party. And again, that this isn't nothing, this isn't anything new, this isn't something I've taught up, but it isn't, you know, plucked out of thin air or anything else. But there's a long tradition within Britain of people identifying this, understanding it in its root causes, in its sort of um, systemic uh, nature. And so to be ignorant of it now is sort of unforgivable uh, and then if people want to have debates about whether or not they stay in the Labour Party have those debates but don't have them in ignorance uh, don't have yeah. them on the basis of nostalgic visions of what the Labour Party has been in the past nostalgic visions about 1945 nostalgic visions about Tony Benn etc etc have those arguments and have those discussions on the basis of an actual understanding of what's going on so I kind of wrote it for that purpose uh, and just because it seemed like an opportune time to write it, especially with everything else that's going on with all the challenges we face in terms of trying to rebuild and reconstitute the left right across Britain it seemed like a, a useful point to make and um, I'll probably write more on it at some point time from it. on the one hand it's very frustrating because you know every time it ha- this happens all the time there's this performative like oh how did this happen you say People say, like, leave the Labour Party and then they never do, blah, blah. Um, but on the other hand, I have noticed since the defeat in 2019, you know, mm. more and more people are, seem to be, even if they're not engaging with, like, you know, the theory of Labourism, seem to be just, like, naturally coming to their own conclusion, like, you know, fuck yeah. this, I'm leaving. Laura Pidcock wrote there, what was it, like, a leaving? What did she leave? She left it at NEC. She resigned from the NEC, yeah. She was. That was a, a principled stance. It prompted in turn like an epic thread from like momentum and all these people and like why socialists need to stay in the Labour Party. And this yeah. is the fundamental thing, you know, the, the stay and fight narrative, like stay in Labour, stay in Labour, stay in Labour. And that's the thing which is yeah. just baffling. And this is the utter futility of that position is what is comprehensively like destroyed by like the the theory the various like theories around laborism and that is why it's so frustrating to get people to like well if you just read this stuff you know you'll understand what's going on so maybe we should talk about the history yeah. of laborism and how we got here because we can yell at people and say the labor party's full of shit and blah blah, yeah. blah. but like the i guess the fundamental point that you make in the article and you know the, the numerous the various new left theorists make is that none of this stuff is like an aberration like you know the, the, all this stuff like the guy wakefield leaving to join uh the labor party them accepting tories and stuff this is like built into the labor party's very fabric none of this is new and you can only understand why this happened if you actually understand the history of the labor party itself where do you think we should start how far back so i think there's some definitional points really so so like that i think that so so in terms of where where you start so i, I the, there's a the guy called theodore rothstein uh, who wrote a book i think he wrote around 1905 or in and around then but it was called from chartism to laborism and it was about the decline of the british labor movement the working class politics in britain and rothstein actually he wrote it for mainly for a russian audience uh, and he and he said that that he saw the chartists as the sort of uh, forerunners of the bolsheviks that the, that the the Chartist movement was the sort of militant working class politics that was then manifested at a later point in time in a different place uh, by the Bolsheviks and during the Russian Revolution. And 
so 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 for for Rothstein and for lots of others, the defeat of Chartism, the defeat of radical independent working class politics, is the start of the turn to Labourism. Uh, so so when when in the mid nineteenth century, mm. when Chartism, which had been revolutionary, you read some of the stuff the Chartists wrote. Um, one of Roth, one of the great things in Rothstein's book, he makes the point that Engels was exposed to the Chartists when he was living in Britain, and that actually Engels and Marx might have got an awful lot of their uh, theory around class struggle and and sort of what it should look like and working class self emancipation. That that was inspired in large part by the Chartists, and even in Capital in Volume One, Marx has a footnote about the defeat of Chartism, but about how the Chartists basically had the right idea, you know, and he and he acknowledges yeah. this himself. So 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 Chartism was this revolutionary movement which was rooted in working class self-organization and again there were lots of people who'd come from the sort of middle class upper classes who played roles in it but it was a mass movement uh militant movement of the working class and once that was defeated then in the late 19th century when you had this period of sort of economic boom british capitalism was booming and you had the emergence of what's called sort of new unionism the new trade unions that emerged out of the professionalized sort of guild unions for the skilled workers and so forth and the marriage of that let's call it the sort of um aristocracy of the working class the marriage of that with the politics of liberalism is where the laborist tradition emerges from right so 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 before you have the expansion of the franchise before the vote is granted to everyone as it's just sort of incrementally moving in that direction um the labor leadership the trade union leadership hitches its wagon to left liberal uh, politics uh, and then eventually this leads to uh, this is a very potted history this leads to the emergence of the Labour Party which has a number of different factions in it some of them communists some of them Marxists some of them revolutionary but the dominant factions are the Fabian tendency within the, the Labour Party and that's a particular understanding of socialism which sees it as a form of gradual incremental top-down reform this is at the sort yeah. of core of, of the sort of Labourist tradition there's all sorts of schisms around the Labour Party at that time. Some groups leave, some stay and so forth. But in the end, you end up with a form of politics, which we call Labourism, which has, I mentioned in the article, uh, three or four core characteristics. The first one is the absolute priority of elections, right? Because, again, the understanding of power is that in order to do anything, you have to be in government because that's where power comes from and that's how you exercise power. So elections become the primary focus of it. A second key uh, aspect of it is the idea or an understanding of the state as neutral. And you see this with Sidney Webb and people like that, also uh, George Bernard Shaw and many others. The idea is that once you get a Labour government elected, they can just pick up the state machine and make it do the things they want. You know what I mean? That you can sort of, okay, granted, it's been privatising housing, it's been privatising healthcare, it's been slashing workers' rights and so forth. But if we get our hands on it, yeah. we can turn it into a four day week, free broadband, we can do all these things if we want it. Right? The state machine is there, we'll take it and we'll run with it. The third sort of key point then that is, is crucial within it is sort of an anti-intellectualism as well. Uh, it's about politics being practical, being pragmatic, not not getting bogged down on ideas, which is always seen as this sort of, you know, unwanted continental thing from France and elsewhere. And yeah. that this goes back to Bourke, you know what I mean, and sort of classical conservative views. And then the last point, which again, I don't know if I mentioned the article in passing, but it's it's the idea of unity within the Labour Party. And this is this is an absolute sort of, article of faith for the left of the Labour Party, but the right of the Labour Party have never been that naive. Uh, they've always understood that if the left was ever getting too far away, the right would take them out of the knees and there'd be no two ways about it. So anyhow, the thing here is that Labourism is a particular 
form of politics uh, that irrespective of who the players are, irrespective of who the people are in there, the broad ideas and the broad framework of what Labour's politics is doesn't really shift, right? And that's and it's been that way since. And again, there are lots of objective reasons as to why it's that way. Like trade, trade union and working class militancy has been, you know, ebbed and flowed over the 20th century, but it never reached the levels it reached in the mid 19th century in terms of the, the sort of charitous movement and so forth. That the existence of a relatively stable democracy where electoralism seemed like it could be an avenue, a way of changing things, uh, you know, is part of the explanation of it. People in Britain, generally speaking, have never, you know, thought of politics beyond which party do you vote for and, you know, yeah, yeah. You know is, is your family Labour or Conservative, whatever it is. So there's a set of objective reasons for it. But the key thing is to understand when you engage with the Labour Party is to understand that when things go wrong, right, when when the aspirations of the left are inevitably frustrated or when Starmer adopts some new horrendous policy, that this isn't an aberration because he's a bad person. And I don't doubt for a minute that he's an awful person. He's he's mendacious, he's he's sort of slovenly and craven. You know, not, you know yeah. what I mean? So 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 no illusions about that. But that's not why the Labour Party is in the state that it's in. It's yeah. in the state that it's in because that's intrinsic to the form of politics that it is, and the form of politics that it is confronting the current crisis. It couldn't be anything other than what it is right now. And the Corbyn thing, unfortunately for a lot of people, the Corbyn thing was a blip, literally an absolute historical accident. You know, Ed yeah. Miliband sort of lazily or unthinkingly introduced a new rule around membership. Uh, John McDonald and others managed to convince Jeremy Corbyn to go on the ballot and got enough people to nominate him because they thought, well, we might as well let the left have their, you know, stick their oar in. What they quite grasped was the moment the historical moment in which this opportunity arose the crisis of capitalism which brexit is the flip side of in britain uh, where people were looking for an alternative to the status quo after six seven years of austerity and corbyn represented that and again i, I mentioned in the article because it's important to say that corbynism was important i i joined labor very briefly to vote for corbyn but i was never an active member i never would be in the labor party in any meaningful sense but i did support the corbyn mm. I think it was important to support it, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and in conversations I had with, with friends and comrades at the time, I, I always wanted to insist to them that we should support it. Absolutely. It's not a revolution. It's not, you know, it's yeah. not the storming of the Winter Palace. But within the British context, it's an important opportunity and we should push it. But I always then, which I thought was crucially important, and I thought was one of the failings of the Corbyn project, I was always also working, trying to develop projects around political education and thinking through the broader organisational questions, because that has been the crucial thing. But Corbynism, as as good as it was and as promising as it was it never departed from the key tenets of this labor tradition even corporatism even the left-wing sort of initiative so again the focus was constantly on elections uh, both external and internal which again is a way of maintaining discipline especially amongst the left that we have to that we might disagree on a whole range of fundamental things we've got the nec election coming up so we have to be on board for that or we've got the um, sort of selection uh, votes for MPs, we have to be on board for that. So there's always this impetus towards elections, this focus on elections. The concept of the state, again, John McDonald has developed some interesting ideas, but again, it rested on the idea of a neutral state that they could lay hold of in order to transform things. While the state, the British state apparatus, through the media, through every other mechanism it had, was at war with, with the Corbyn project, you know, through the sort of anti-Semitism crisis, through how Brexit was played out, through all these various things, the state 
state was showing its hand. You know, um, Terry Eagleton has this great line that the, the capitalist state is neutral until it looks like its opponents have a chance of winning, and then yeah. <laughs> and, it goes, like, you know, and so we we sort of saw that as well. Um, and also this idea of unity again. You know, the the Corbyn uh, there's a, a good comrade of mine. He's a uh, he's an active trade unionist in in Unison, and he said you judge every regime by what comes after it. Uh, and on the basis of that, the Corbyn regime was a massive failure, uh, and they they balked at the idea of automatic reselection. They balked at all sorts of other internal reforms because they had to or wanted to sustain some concept of party unity, even though it was never any substantive meaningful unity. The unity of the sort of hanged man on the rope, you know what I mean? That's, yeah, the, that's exactly. That was the extent of it. Um, and so the, the speed with which the Corbyn project was sort of overturned within Labour just shows the resilience of Labourism as a form of politics and how the left in Labour is constantly in hock to that. And part of writing this article and why it's important for people to engage with the ideas around Labourism, whether you stay in Labour or leave, and again, I, I don't think any socialist should be in the Labour Party because I don't think it is, it's any there's any mechanism for advancing socialism within it. Uh, but whether you stay or whether you leave, you shouldn't do it in ignorance. You should at least understand the theory that underpins the politics you're engaged in. You should at least understand the history of your own movement, and your own organisation, instead of constantly being sort of cut out and caught by surprise by reality. You know, it's not just that uh, this person's a sellout or that person's a traitor. Da, 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 da. There are sellouts, there are traitors, but there's a reason why this politics repeats itself over and over and over again and that's because of the systemic character of laborism as a form of politics i was just reading that tom then on laborism again today and yeah in line on you know at treachery says you know there's no social democratic movement across the world has produced so many traitors as laborism has yeah. and every time it happens people are shocked and yeah. claim it's an aberration but he says you know that the idea of class treachery is actually built into 100%. laborism itself i just want to go back through some of the some of the history and we'll just flesh yeah. it out a bit faster right um yeah, yeah going back to like the you know the, the, the very foundations like the labor representation committee and um tough fail dispute and all that nan has this interesting thing about you know the two tendencies like the independent labor Party, because you know the labor party was this broad weird church wasn't it uh, that you had the fabians which he says, like, basically based in London. Then you had the Independent Labour Party, the ILP. Obviously, Keir Hardy is like the icon of the ILP, which was, you know, actually had a base in the working class. And was, but what he says was that what happened right at the start was the Fabians take on the intellectual strategic leadership role, if it could be called an intellectual position, and the potentially radical ILP just takes a totally subservient role you know the start of the 20th century the left the labor left have been totally subservient and as you said it's always to do with this you've got to maintain a unity but it's all it's always the unity on the terms of the right and the other thing about the um it, it is important i think to talk about this you know, without hammering people too much but the anti-intellectualism yeah. has always been at like the core of laborism then identifies as being sort of part of this protestant non-conformist tradition which he mm-hmm. which was part of the ilp so it's like kind of like a moral critique of the excesses of capitalism so there's no real dedication to understanding like what capitalism is what socialism is what you know how the world works how these conditions are produced it's just like this is outrageous there are poor people and they're starving and it's terrible which is all very well and good having that like moral you need that moral critique but it's never ever allied to like a broader theoretical analysis of the situation and then it says something along the lines of they thought theory was like um the work of like the devil you know intellectualism yeah. was like this devilish thing that mm. as I said it's continental so that's the interesting thing about the roots and the other thing i was wondering if we could talk about was and and it is important that we realize how nationally specific the 
Labourism is because obviously yeah. you know, you're Irish, you come to the UK and, and you sort of will probably notice it more than people who've grown up in the UK. But obviously, you know, Lenin, Marx, like Engels, all made these comments, you know, on the comparative servility and passivity of the British Labour movement. You know, and it, it takes people who are from outside the UK to go, holy shit, like, you know, the you know, there's a lot of reactionary ideas going on here compared to even France, even Germany. To what extent is that bound up with with imperialism? I think that is important. I think that again, this the Theodore Rothstein's book I'd recommend it highly to, to sort of anyone. You, there's a, I'm fairly certain there's a PDF of it available online um, because it might be a hard book to find. Um, but he he makes the point that the forced labour MPs, and it's interesting because these days I'd say the spiritual heirs of the ILP these days haven't changed. They'll still say stuff like Britain's unequal. It shouldn't be. Uh, tax the rich. Uh, you know, get get private finance out of the NHS. Right? That's all fine. They're all absolutely fine sort of initial positions. But again, there isn't any serious interrogation of where where did that come from in the first place? What sustains it, and what yeah. could be a feasible alternative to it? So that so that absolutely still uh, persists. But that same layer, these are the people who you'll often hear sometimes saying, "Oh, we need more working class people as MPs," and then that will that will change how the politics. So we need to change the person. We need more people in there with flat caps and and whatever. Yeah. It is, right? It's interesting because the first few Labour MPs that were ever elected were uh, former former miners, you know, working class. And they were sewn up within a week or two of getting in there. You know, they walked in, they were overawed by the majesty of the House of Commons, overawed by the pageantry. They were very quickly co-opted. And yet that absolutely is linked to both imperialism, but also to monarchism. It's linked to the existence of the royal family. Uh, James Connolly was was brilliant on this. He said, that sort of any, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but that any people that still venerates royalty has a sort of servile and slavish mentality. Like, you know what I mean? And, and so within Britain, picked at that point in time, the Labour Party forced emerged. Those who were from working class backgrounds, who were part of the Labour movement, who wanted their share who wanted labour share in some in some sense, who then went into Parliament, were really absorbed into it straight away. It's interesting, Stuart McIntyre, who wrote a great book called The Proletarian Science, which is about the history of Marxism in Britain, but specifically within working class movements, not the sort of academicized version of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he says this, this was a movement that was always sceptical of and antagonistic towards respectable routes to reform that mm. that, that the sort of militant working class in britain the proper militant working class in britain always understood that you couldn't to, to sort of paraphrase um audrey lord understood that the master's tools couldn't dismantle the master's house that you couldn't walk into westminster and you know become be, be, become wrapped up in all that and change things that you had to change it externally you had to change it by building your own movements and the labor party was co-opted from the outset even when i had these working class mps going in there all and look at andrew rayner working class mp from a trade union slate and very much straight into the whole laborist tradition the uncritical unthinking embrace of electoralism and uh, personal egoism and all that stuff so yeah a hundred percent imperialism was part of it because again in in terms of the material basis of laborism and how it's been reproduced over the last hundred years part of it was that in the context of the global division of labor the british working class were able to gain a greater share and a greater degree of luxury and so forth than workers and other parts of the world because of imperialism because of british colonialism and also then racism was reinforced divisions between workers from other parts of the world and when when people emigrated here, uh, reinforced divisions then. So that is a fundamental part of the British story and the Labour's tradition. It, it has parallels with reformism in other parts of the world, but it does have a peculiarly British uh, aspect to it. Yeah. And World War One was like one of the key 
moments which sort of brings this to the forefront you know this the split in the Labour Party and like but the overwhelming majority of Labour representatives well just like they did across Europe you oh, know, yeah like, like the SPD like, did like yeah everyone, just yeah. capitulated to like the imperialist war and mm. and just collapse into like national chauvinism and I'm not you know I'm not into like obviously I've slagged off identity politics a lot but one of the most useful things to think about you know how you know the intersection of like race and yeah. class I, work I think is is looking at the history of like white laborism and you know the the roots of some of the the labor movement uh, the trans transnational sort of labor unions in the british commonwealth and their hostility to like you know black labor and things like that um is, is a very interesting and underexplored like aspect which can help explain some of the sort of more reactionary aspects of laborism and also if, whether it's true or not but the, the the rumor that after james Connolly was shot that Labour MPs allegedly Applaud. applauded in the, yeah, yeah. in the House of Commons, which is just so yeah. unbelievably reprehensible, which then leads Lenin to write about the Irish question and the, the, the and how imperialism like retards the, the, the social consciousness or, or like the revolutionary consciousness in the imperial countries, which is obviously taken on then like by Fanon and all that late, late, later on. And, and again, <laughs> just never engaged with. No, never engaged, engaged still never engaged with you know how like the, the imperialism is not just devastating to the countries that are colonized it's yeah. devastating to the, the people in the core countries who get brutalized by it and and, and get turned into sort of chauvinist essentially well there's an interesting parallel with that i mean i think that is absolutely true and fanon and others did did amazing one emmy Cesare and others did amazing work on that but, but there's a parallel with um with bell hook's work on on patriarchy so so bell hooks who was a you know fantastic thinker and a whole range of issues but she made the point that the the forced victims of patriarchy are young boys and 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 then from that obviously then in, in yeah, very concrete ways the 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 real victims then are, are of course women who suffer at the violence of men and patriarchal society but bell, bell hooks makes the point that it's that that patriarchy is as damaging to boys and men as it is to women albeit in different ways because it kills off you know emotional development and it kills off a whole range of of other things and so absolutely the case that in britain because of its imperial past because of its colonial past and its continuing imperial role uh, that this has um shaped uh, the labor movement here and has produced laborism in its specific connotation which is again why we mentioned at the start sort of the overseas operations bill and so which is again why the labor party abstained on all this you know and, and which is again why yesterday which was the 50th anniversary of the uh, bloody sunday massacre in Derry in ireland uh Keir Starmer wanted to release a statement on it but it was this sort of you know unfolded yeah, yeah, it, it, the the massacre unfolded, or the tragedy, I think, unfolded. Uh, but, but as bad as Starmer's statement was, and it was bad, and it was abysmal, and again, as I said, he's, he's un, undeniably a, a horrendous uh, person. As bad as that was, equally bad was how for sections of the Labour left and the British left, the anniversary of Bloody Sunday became about the contrast between Jeremy Corbyn speaking in Derry and how Keir Starmer responded to it. And again, it's that myopia. Again, it's it's, it's not just uh, the Labour left. It's the, the, I wrote a piece way back for um, for New Socialist. Uh, I wrote a piece for them during the whole Brexit sort of milieu. And the opening line, I sort of I paraphrased ill-advisedly Rudyard Kipling, I paraphrase by saying, what no day of Brexit who only Brexit know? Because the thing was that 
the British discussion of Brexit was so myopic and so inward looking, it was unbelievable. It, the whole discussion was carried on by your, your sort of, you know, liberal remainers and others. The whole discussion was carried on with reference to Britain, with no understanding really of the European Union, with no understanding of what was happening in the rest of Europe in terms of political changes and transformations and so forth. And so likewise, um, part of the legacy of colonialism and imperialism and being that sort of centre of the world for a period of time is that there is that myopia on the Labour left in particular, but on the British left more broadly, who can be weak on a whole range of issues from Cuba to Venezuela to Palestine, even though there'll be like a performative solidarity, the actual understanding of it and engagement with it is often quite superficial. Over Christmas, people were like, (laughs) just a reminder, if Jesus was alive, you know, he'd be expelled from the Labour Party. (laughs) And then someone was like, yeah, like why would you assume that like Jesus, like Son of God, would be like in the British Labour Party? It's just this absolute pathological way of just like, and I can't remember what the other one was, but it's just uh, Desmond Tutu. When Tutu died, uh, was it very recently? Um, yeah, yeah. And December, uh, people were like, just a reminder that you know what Tutu said about Israel, he would have been expelled from yeah. the Labour Party, and I was like, just absolutely incapable of seeing anything, uh, of understanding the world unless it's through the prism of. Yeah. of the Labour Party. It's just a totally bizarre way of yeah. seeing the world. So why are you talking about the Labour Party? What's got nothing yeah. to do with it? Anyway, that's uh, as an aside. What we're doing now, or trying to do, is obviously being done in different generations. And, and, mm. and in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was a really, like I say, rich tradition mm. of intellectual engagement in the UK with like the new left. So, you know, Tom Nairn, Raymond Williams, Ralph Miliband, John Saville, um, yeah and others like those are like the main ones i read which seems i mean it hasn't fallen by the way so totally because you mentioned the new socialist i do think there is a there is an intellectual side of the labor left which is very important yeah. and self-aware which is you know very useful but compared to back then i think we can agree that like the intellectual um landscape is pretty is, is pretty bleak in terms yeah. of like the left in the uk in, in general but um they mounted a sustained engagement with you know, the Labour Party and whether socialists should stay in the Labour Party, whether the Labour Party can be a, an instrument for the advance of the working class and so on. And I think it's really worth going going through them. Maybe we, a place to start, I think, would would be possibly Miliband, yeah. um, parliamentary socialism rather than like the state capitalist society, because one of the problems or pathologies of the British left is this nostalgia, this relentless nostalgia, this tr- re- reduction of class to like, culture and iconography yeah. the Dara miners gala like you know yeah. whippets or whatever and you know it's rightly parodied now as like called a uh, authenticity joe kennedy's yeah. uh, book which was really good but you know the left does it i'd say more than anyone in this total obsession with the welfare state and what Miliband i think did which was really interesting was like he just he primarily known as a theorist but he eviscerates you know the history of the welfare state and, yeah. and just says it was a uh, 1945 to 1951 and it's worshipped well i can see why it was worshipped because it obviously instituted like massive material gains for like working class people across across the uk and obviously in wales it's it's very big because like bevan played such a big role but you know Miliband judges it extremely harshly says it a massive failure ends ends in f- in five years all the good things are undone yeah. so is that is that the, the best starting point do you think to sort of undo the history of the most famous Labour government, because that that in a way that period that's the that has set the parameters yeah. for the modern Labour Party. And Corbyn's premiership was 
was just saturated with like that sort of nostalgic imagery of like this is what this is what we did before this is what we can do now and like i think miller band is excellent on that but even even to go a little further back in in 1967 uh john savile who was a, a communist who you yeah, fought in uh, world war ii he was you know like, uh, he's yeah. a regimental sergeant major so he's an absolute just all around unit like yeah, not, you can uh, have not, not not your typical intellectual like just no no but but, but also a serious intellectual and a great historian of the yeah, labor yeah, movement fantastic. And even in 1967, uh, he he wrote that this is a I think sort of germane to what you've mentioned. Here. He said that myths and illusions form an interesting and often extra extraordinary part of the political behaviour of many individuals who make up the labour movement. In particular, the myths around 1945. So so he sort of stresses that this is 1967. So this is only you know yeah. ten years after the decline, as it were. Uh, and he also has another line which I think is is sort of key to it. He says it is no doubt the long intervals between labour governments in Britain that have encouraged the illusions that encrust the movement concerning the social potential of a future Labour government. So Savile already in the 60s was making these points and absolutely Miliband picks them up and, and, and a number of other people do. But again, the point about the welfare state and, and sort of the achievements of the Labour Party and the Labour government, this goes back to the anti-intellectualism because again, not understanding the very specific conjunctural circumstances post-World War II that allowed for the emergence of the welfare state in a tiny corner of the world. You're talking parts of Western Europe, to some degree North America, Australia and Japan to a lesser extent. Right. So in a tiny fraction of the world in terms of the history of global capitalism, you had a welfare state to some degree or another that existed for roughly 30 years, you know, uh, 30, 35 years. Now, you can say elements of the welfare states that exist today, and that's true. But in terms of the welfare state as a sort of um, ascendant, you know, progressive alternative yeah, yeah. to the to the sort of inherent uh, barbarism of capitalism, there was this very brief moment. And again, the idea here is is that oh well, this is what Labour could do, and this is what Labour would do again, right? Well, one, the Labour government that did that at the time did it under pressure from the working class. It did it from millions of demobilised soldiers who again, like looking for work, looking for certain living standards, who had had very recent experience of being armed and mobilised out and about in the streets. You also go back to Hobbsbaum and others. You had the threat of the Soviet Union, which existed as an alternative to capitalism, and so you know, as I said, in these advanced capitalist countries. Governments around the world embraced minimum forms of reformism, A, to build up, rebuild their own economies, to sort of kickstart and reboot capital accumulation and to meet the demands of a substantial labour movement. So you had that particular moment. And even in that context, I think it's um, the guy's name Edgerton who wrote the book on on the, oh, yeah, the yeah. British state. Even he makes the point that actually the spending of the Labour government in that period on social projects compared to its spending on weapons and other things wasn't all that dramatic. So even, even then it was quite limited. And then also the important point is it was also the Labour government who laid the groundwork to undo the welfare state. It was a Labour government who, who who sort of accepted the loans from the IMF, who began then to sort of put downward pressure on workers' rights, who started the processes movement. You mentioned this previously before we come on uh, recording, who had sort of got the ball rolling in terms of the privatisation of the housing stock before Thatcher sort of yep. turbocharged it. So the Labour government did 
oversee that brief period that we think of the spirit of 45 and so forth in the welfare state. But that was a historical idiosyncrasy in terms of, uh, sorry, a historical anachronism in terms of the history of capitalism, but also in terms of the history of the Labour Party. The Labour Party itself has generally never pushed any sort of radical, even reformist projects aside from in that period. But in that period, it was as much about restoring capital accumulation and British industry as it was about meeting the interests of the working class. The big shift that happens then, and this is why the work of Miliband and others is important. So when Miliband is writing you through the 70s into the early 80s, and also people like David Coates, who's, who's written really important stuff, and at the time at which they're writing, you've you've got, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but you've got trade union membership that's at least three times or four times what we have at the moment. Oh, yeah. A much bigger labour movement. You've got still got the existence of a whole range of uh, secondary institutions of working class solidarity, everything from working men's clubs to community centres to, you know, a whole range of things that link working class communities together. You have a, a sort of social structure and framework that if you were going to pursue a sort of a reformist agenda, that's the framework you'd want to operate within. You'd want to do it on that basis, on that social basis. And even then, People like Miliband and and Coase are saying the Labour Party's done. There's nothing can be done with it. Not because there's bad people in there, not because um, Kinnock is especially horrible, or not because, but because of the nature of Labourism as a form of politics. It will always compromise. It will always put the interests of capital over Labour when push comes to shove. It will always put the interests of the nation state over the broader interests of sort of the common good or whatever else you want to use. So again, the idea that you can do now. In this current context, with a labour movement that's been decimated, with sort of uh, working class communities that have been destroyed, traditional institutions of working class life and culture have been picked apart. The idea that in that context, you could then have a radical reformist labour government is yeah. just so off the wall, it's unbelievable. You know what I mean? They're just completely ahistorical, completely divorced from any understanding of capitalism and divorced from any understanding of the Labour Party. And that is really important because... The, the challenges we face now are genuine. And again, as I say, I go back to this OECD report. I'll send you I'll send you the report. And if you want to link it in for people, you can have a look at it. But this is the OECD, which is effectively sort of a, you know, a very useful research body for global capital in certain key respects, or for, at least for global states. And they're producing reports saying we're facing existential threats from climate breakdown. So this isn't like minor left-wing groups or it isn't Greta Thunberg this is the OECD producing these reports saying look we're facing these serious real existential threats for climate breakdown inequality declining workers right right? in that context and this is part of where I wrote the piece about labour now the challenge we face as socialists the fight that we have on our hands is so serious and so pressing the idea that people would spend the next five years waiting for Andy Burnham to possibly become the leader of the Labour Party it's just absolutely like soul destroying and abysmal and again it's just that we we don't have this time genuinely we have to be doing all of the other hard work of rebuilding rank and file trade unionism rebuilding working class community infrastructures developing serious political education to overcome the inertia of the anti-intellectualism of the British left and the and sort of Labour tradition we have to be doing that work and fighting the real fights instead of trying to get the whip restored to Jeremy Corbyn or trying to get, you know, Keir Starmer to say something nice about, uh, you know, some modest redistribution. We don't have the time for that. I hadn't even thought about that, but it is so chastening to, as you say, to think back to you know, the social basis of labourism, which was so mm-hmm. strong in like the, the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. when they were writing these things. You know, in the NAND piece, I mean, obviously I'm writing a book about class at the moment, but, you know, he says, you know, the UK is a proletarian country. 
unambiguously you know like mm. um you know and if you look at the class structure very small like professional uh class the vast majority of people still working in manual yeah. labor Big most people most, yeah. yeah most people unionized with working class institutions and and as you said if you look regardless of like the labor party if you look at like the what the working class have now in terms of institutions much but yeah um in terms of you know so there's the history of the welfare state and it's yeah. the you know because I, I always look at this through like Miliband's like journey but it was obviously looking at the history of the welfare state is leads him into that to try to theorize you know this the state and i think that's really important because as you mentioned before one of the key pillars of laborism is a misunderstanding of power specifically a misunderstanding of the nature of the capitalist state and and the specific misunderstanding is that the labor party thinks that the state is neutral and something that doesn't have any particular class character um and it's savile and miliband who sort of eviscerate that that Mm. idea you you can talk about like the, the theory of the state. I think well, and you are you are an actual like world leading expert on the theory of the state. So, uh, but there's a neat paragraph in in the Savile piece mm-hmm. where he talks about you know a Labour minister coming into the British state mm-hmm. sits in the chair that's just been vacated by a Tory minister. He is attended on like hand and foot by the same Tory civil servants uh, that have just been running the state on behalf of the Tory party on behalf of capital yeah. uh, and it goes into great detail but it's this the, the idea that you can just slip into that yeah. those corridors of power and change things is just almost totally nonsensical and the experience of the Labour government in 1945 to 51 is empirical proof of that because they were you know they ended up keeping all the when they nationalized things they kept the the directors who were there previously when it was privatized companies they were like oh actually you can run it we'll just we'll just national you know we'll just nationalize yeah. it um and there were a whole host of like examples of, of what happened both in terms of them getting co-opted but also the state actually like just pushing back even quite gently you know like yeah. uh, was it the sugar companies running all these like campaigns in the press against nationalization of like sugar and, and eventually like weakening them and crushing them and so i was wondering if you could talk a bit about about that yeah, so that, like that, I think that the thing about state power is crucial, and even more so going back to the discussion we had at the start about about the sort of increasing <clears throat> authoritarianism that we're seeing right around the world. Um, so there's a lot to unpick on this, um, but I think one of the the key points that socialists and Marxists need to be acutely aware of, and which again, as I say, the the politics of laborism militates against this, is an understanding that, and and funny enough, um. You mentioned James Connolly a little bit earlier. So Connolly articulated this in a way which was the common sense of of the working class and labour movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when he said that fighting for control of the political state isn't the real battle, it's the echo of the battle, right? And what that was, that was based on an understanding that the power of capital didn't come in the first instance from the fact that there was a Tory government in parliament it came in the first instance from ownership of the means of production right so that's where power came from in mm. in the first instance that that's the social power of capital uh, which then is mediated through the state and through elections and through all these other things so so elections are important and government is important but it doesn't exist in a vacuum on its own you can't just as i said pick it up as a tool and tap it over there and all of a sudden everybody's got free broadband and everybody's got free organic food delivered to their houses every day free, you know, it doesn't work like that um isvan mazaros who was um who was a great marxist thinker he had this excellent way of summing it up where he said that uh, capitalism is the extra parliamentary force 
par excellence, right? So that, well, at the moment, social democrats are looking at elections in the state and how do we get in there? How do we get into that seat where we'll have yeah. almost zero power? How do we get in there? Capital is dominating on a much wider level. And the thing is, is that we have to build a socialist movement that is aware of that. And sort of the historically, and again, this is what the old socialist movements focused on, uh, which is still really important. It's at the point of production, which is in the workplace. This is where you fight capital in the first instance. This is where it's important to build strong trade unions and militant trade unions and rank and file trade unions. But one of the things we've learned, particularly over the last 100 years, is that all of the other battles, all the other sites of reproduction are also crucially important. So whether this is over food, uh, um, fuel, whether it's over housing, whether it's over healthcare, all these essentials of life, all of those battles are also class struggles between the interests, broadly speaking, of labour and capital. And so the problem that the labour tradition, laborist tradition has is that it understands the state just to be this neutral technical entity that you pick up and wield it. And, and I think it's in the Savile piece that I mentioned. He quotes George Bernard Shaw, who was a famous Fabian. And George Bernard Shaw says, OK, well, at the minute, he says, the army come out to bar workers from occupying a building or to, you know, do that. But if we had a Labour government in there, then all of a sudden the army's coming out to confiscate the property of capital. Now, that's not how it yeah. works. Again, just concretely, when Corbyn was forced elected, I think within the first month or two, a serving British general, a very senior British military mm. officer, said that if Corbyn tried to implement some of his proposals around the military and foreign policy, we might have to mobilise. Right? So that was, that was straight away. The warning was out there. Like The state isn't neutral. right? And the thing is, is that in terms of how the Labour's tradition approaches it, the state is this tool you want to get hold of so that then you can implement the social policies you need, right? But that completely misunderstands how that works. The state doesn't shape society as it wants in any which way it wants. The state is constantly responding to, in the first instance, the demands of capital, but also countervailing tendencies. So the recent experience around COVID is a good example of that, right? What people often see as incompetence is probably in part incompetence, but it's also the government and the state trying to manage contradictory impulses so on the one hand you've got this sort of unprecedented uh, public health uh, uh, sort of problem that has to be addressed through uh, you know some form of um, lockdowns and social distancing and so on and on the other hand you have the imperatives and the demands of capital accumulation and get back to business as usual and get people out shopping and get uh, industries running again and get all that going and because of that we've ended up with this stuttering stop start approach because the state is trying to mediate those two interests but again it's primarily coming out as it always does first and foremost in the interest of capital so again looking at what's happened over the last two years during the pandemic I'll see if I can remember the exact numbers, but globally, um, workers have lost somewhere in the region of $3.4 trillion over the last two years, and capital has gained $3.7 trillion. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Uh, and and again, Robert Brenner and others have written on this in the US context under Biden, the upward transfer and a literal handing of billions and billions to capital is, is being consolidated. So we need, as as socialists and as Marxists, to have a more comprehensive understanding of state power, to understand that elections are important in particular contexts, but that ultimately we have to be building an alternative social power to the power of capital. And that means then building, as I said, trade unions, but also community organisations, tenants groups, um, new community gardens, new ways of people interacting and reproducing themselves. That's where the focus has to be. If you're just trying now um, in this current context, faced with climate breakdown, faced with you know all sorts of other problems, if you're thinking that, okay, we could just pass an act that will ameliorate this problem, 
you misunderstand the causes of the problem and you misunderstand the extent of the power of parliament. And again, as I said, Savile, Miliband, Coates, Mazaros, Rosa Luxemburg, you know, like, like the, this is again one of the biggest problems and one of the scariest things uh, on, on sections of the British left is that, and I noticed this around Brexit and everything else as part of what the left campaign was about, was how much of the heritage of the international socialist movement has been lost. So we shouldn't yeah. have to reinvent the wheel every couple of years. There's a tradition there and a, and, a, and a, an important uh, sort of degree of insights and analysis and a framework to allow us to understand the world so that we don't get sucked into these dead ends and not constantly get cut out and constantly get surprised by unfolding reality. And the lack of that education, again, it's linked to this anti-intellectualism within the Labourist tradition. It's linked also to the defeats of the left, the sort of obliteration of the groups like the SWP and everything else. It's, it's all just died away. And you're left with this sort of bland melange of moralism. You know what I mean? You know, society's unequal. It shouldn't be. Great. OK. <laughs> how did that happen and how do we get out of it? Well, an attempt to use this as a segue, but... One of the most interesting things for me over the last uh, well decade is that countless examples of the state like being unmasked, you know, <laughs> the COVID cronyism is a great starting point. I would say if you're teaching like, you know, uh, theories of the state, surely, because it shows like how corrupt it all was. The government, as I said, literally acting in the interest of capital, who are literally like in this case, like their actual school friends, you know, like here you go and give you yeah. billions of pounds and then write it off in loans. That's like an amazingly useful illustration. But then going back to the, the Corbyn leadership and seeing like the entire British media and the entire British political and media, well, all aspects of the state apparatus pulling together to just like destroy this this guy and, and, and crush him. Um, you know, the media in, in particular I thought was quite interesting. And then before that, you you know, we had, you know, the Scottish independence referendum was very interesting because you had the Labour Party, the Tory Party, you know, literally a big business, yeah. MI5, <laughs> all these people sort of coming together to sort of tr- try to destroy the Scottish independence movement. So you have these examples that are very open in recent history that keep revealing like, well, this is the nature of the state. So, you know, sometimes I think, well, why then is that not being built on? Because it's like, well, look, you know, the curtain's been pulled back. You can see that this, the game is rigged. This brings us to like, not just why hasn't this been taken on board, but you know, why don't people learn from this? And I don't want to spend the rest of the pod, like, you know, slagging people off, but you know, I think me and you have come around to this increasingly that it, cause labor is for me now is being, it's something that should be dead by rights. Yeah. So the La- labor party should be dead. So yeah. You know, passockification, that word that has been used to describe the collapse of leftist movements around Europe. You know, mm-hmm. Corbynism sort of delayed that, I yeah. thought, because change, you know, genuine potential change happened within yeah, yeah. the Labour Party. Um, but now he's gone. It's like, well, the Labour Party should by rights die. So what is keeping it alive artificially is on mm-hmm. life support. Um, and I've sort of concluded that it's just there are a lot of people who have a vested interest in keeping the Labour Party afloat and I'm not saying like people are stopping people reading like the state mm-hmm. capitalist society or anything like that but it's clear to me that Labourism is also a culture yeah. and, a, and a field and, and a lifestyle in a way. I think you're right there so so there's a couple of levels to it right so on the one hand sort of one of the objective factors that keeps Labour alive is the electoral system in Britain so there's yeah. a- Course, past the post is, is is one of the things that does keep it alive, but that's not the only one. It's it's an important one, but that's 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 part of it. Uh, the next level is the continued 
support and sort of uh, intermarriage between the trade union bureaucracies yeah. and the Labour Party, which again materially and financially helped reproduce the Labour Party, and also then politically because again there's a there are all these conveyor belts for uh, ambitious young trade union bureaucrats to go on, go on and become uh, Labour Party candidates, and you know the, the the sort of backwards and forth, the revolving door between the again trade union bureaucracies and the Labour Party is is quite extensive, and so that is an important material factor. In terms of the politics of it uh, on the day-to-day basis, absolutely what reproduces it again is the persistence of laborism as a form of politics, which again has the, the factors I mentioned, but also I think you're right, the, the subculture of of, of labor partyism is is yeah. definitely part of it, you know. And within that, I think there's I mentioned it just in one sentence in the article, because again, I don't think that it's the fundamental factor, but I think it is really important. But the personal and material toys that bind people to the project. You know I mean, so if you've, as every example, if you've set up a new media outlet during the Corbyn period, um, whatever your own subjective uh, view of the world and whatever your own subjective imaginings of your own politics are, you're tied in very intimate ways to the ongoing Labour project. So you shift then from from being in and around Corbyn, in and around building a left, you shift then to becoming just another sort of part of the apparatus of discussing Labour in general, you know what I mean, in, in, in general terms. And then the personal things, again, I've never been in it, um, but you can see that there are people who from a young age have gone to Labour Party conference, have been in young Labour, have met partners, uh, you know, husbands, wives, whatever, uh, through the Labour Party, have got friends, you know, the whole lifestyle is, de- is defined by it, and they're locked into it. And I can understand how it would be hard for someone to step away from that, even if you do yeah. understand uh, the limitations of the politics. Then there are people who who are probably honestly still in it who are cynical, you know what I mean? So there'll be people in it who, who say stay and fight and know full well that there's no fight, you know, they'll know that it just means stay. Uh, and there'll be people who perhaps are not fully cynical, but people who are naive. You know what I mean? There might be people who stay around momentum and places like that thinking we could still, you know, turn the tide and, and turn this into a transformative socialist movement. But again, that just suffers from the lack of understanding that we've discussed so far. So I think there's a whole range of factors that keep it in place. But I do think, and I know this is something we agree on, I, I do think that in Britain, and I primarily mean sort of in England, obviously, uh, and Wales also, Scotland's got a different trajectory going on and and so but like the a priority in the medium to short term an absolute necessity is breaking the social basis of laborism it is breaking the stranglehold that laborism exercises over any initiatives for left-wing politics in britain because if we don't do that and again it's interesting Savile, Miliband, Coates, all of these make this same point that they've been making it since the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, I say Rothstein was writing about it in, in sort of the 1900s. If we don't break with it in the coming era, we will be wholly inadequate in the face of the crises that are unfolding before us. And that will hand initiative to the right. Because again, we are facing very serious climate breakdown. We're facing structural endemic collapse in terms of living standards in terms of uh, real wages for workers in terms of any idea of security any notions of security that people have all of that is coming under very serious sustained threat now and if there isn't a serious socialist alternative to that the right will offer an alternative in various guises whether in the sort of right-wing keynesianism and authoritarian nationalism of the conservative party whether in some sort of new variant of ukip um, some sort of melange in that or whether in the sort of 
slightly softer right wing authoritarianism of the Labour Party trying to embrace, you know, the the sort of coattails of Toryism. Samir Amin, who was a fantastic Egyptian Marxist, had this line which which has stuck with me for years, which is that in the absence of progressive alternatives, people whose lives are in disarray and who are under pressure retreat into reactionary ones. And that has been a challenge that has faced us for years, but it's intensified uh, at the moment and will intensify going forward. So Labour and the Labour and the Labour Party and Labourism should be dead. It's not. It's been sustained through a whole range of the layers that you mentioned and others. But we have to act in a way which will sort of euthanize it. We have to build movements that will make it less and less relevant and build movements that will make it clear that any pathway towards socialism in Britain will go through the Labour Party, not in institutional terms, but me and going through it in the way in which you go through somebody on a football pitch. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's how you build some socialism in Britain. I think it's the Raymond Williams article, you know, why do people stay in the Labour Party? And he was like, well, because through the trade unions, there's a massive organic link to the working class, which is like, yeah. it's true. Yeah, and I hadn't even thought about this because I had this like, you know, pathological hatred of the Labour Party. He was like, <laughs> I need to remind myself of that. And as you said, the first past the post system, I feel like, you know, like I'm in Compass or I'm like Paul Mason. But when people are talking about like, you know, I saw one of those like galaxy brain takes and it was like proportional representation is not going to bring like working class to power mm. and it was one of those like marxists who's also like in the british labor party mm. um and i was like well neither is labor party going to bring <laughs> labor party is like going to bring work class to power i admit but i know proportional representation is like this uh massive fad of like centrist but whilst we're still on the terrain of like sort of bourgeois liberal politics yeah. do you not think that proportional representation could at least allow as long as you don't a bit like UBI, as long yeah. as people don't get hung up on it and think of it as the, the sort of foundational yeah. basis of all their politics. First past the post is a crippling practical problem. So I, I think um I think it is a crippling crippling practical problem when you focus on elections and when you focus on, yeah. on who's gonna form government Westminster. And I think this goes back to one of the fundamental definitional issues, which is what is socialism? Um and and if socialism for you means potentially getting an Andy Burnham led Labour Party into government in 10 years and then maybe taking 0.02% off national insurance contributions or redistributing a little bit so whatever it might be uh, whatever top down reform if that's socialism to you then absolutely you know fill your boots with, um, with electoral reform and fill your boots with contesting elections within the Labour Party and, and all that other stuff and, 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 and do that if on the other hand Socialism for you is about building the confidence and the capacity of working class people in the workplace, in the communities and elsewhere to transform society for themselves. Well, then that shouldn't be your focus, certainly not uh, in the short term. And I wouldn't even think in the long to medium term. I'll come back to the the post in a minute, but just on this question of socialism. If you understand that, as I say, about fundamentally transforming society in a way which is radical and which Mm. is sustainable, well, then the mechanism for electing someone into parliament is a secondary concern. The real concern is how do you build and rebuild a rank and file trade union movement? And if you build a rank and file trade union movement, I guarantee you, if we built a successful one across the various unions, and so I guarantee you that the organic link to the working class of the Labour Party purports to have would be severed because any decent trade union movement wouldn't associate with the British Labour Party. Any decent trade union movement where the workers from a rank and file perspective are ex 
exercising control and influence over wouldn't align itself with that form of politics. It would be engaged in different ways. I mean, Sharon Graham and Unite is, you know, a possible green shoot around yeah, yeah. The, the Baker's Union disaffiliating as an indication of that. So, so again, you know, I think that would that would shake things up. But if you have militant, educated, confident working class activists contesting things at a municipal level and transforming things there, which is there's much more scope for electoral engagement than smaller groups, if that's what you want to do. But if you had them just by building community gardens, by building community uh, local food projects, sustainable and reproductive uh, food projects, alternatives to uh, how they police their own communities. If you have that stuff going on and if you're building the social basis for an alternative to the existing system will then force past the post is less important it's also the case then if you can build that you will have to develop and this again is a big challenge for all of us you'll have to develop a mechanism to unite the various different struggles because again it's not enough to have loads of little discrete struggles right and if you can unite those struggles then going back to Isfan Mazaros's point about capitalism being the extra parliamentary force par excellence, if you can exercise, if you have a big enough social movement, and then if there is a Labour government, even if it is a centre-left tame traditional Labour government, if you have a social movement externally that pressures it and forces it and, and if need be emboldens it to adopt more radical policies, you can do that. Now, that's the electoral side of it. If you go back to just focusing on that, I come from a country, I grew up in a country with uh, proportional representation, where the same two parties traded government for 100 years, effectively, since independence. So the idea of proportional representation is the panacea to the fundamental problems that confront British society and British democracy is an exaggeration. Now, as a matter of principle, if there was a vote on proportional representation, I'd vote in favour of it. I'd vote in favour of changing it and it might open up some cracks for um, smaller parties to get a foothold in Parliament and that might create interesting dynamics. But fundamentally, it won't alter the balance of power in British society. It won't fundamentally change the root causes of the problems that confront the working classes in Britain and confront the working classes around the world. So my argument and my view has been, and again, even during the Corbyn period, is that I had these discussions with friends where I said I support the Corbyn project, I support what he's doing, even if he got elected and implemented 95% of what he'd like to implement, it'd still fall far short of what socialists should want, and we need to be building something else. And if, the, if we ever had got a, a Labour, uh, Corbyn Labour government, we would have needed to mobilise massive movements to support and pressure them. Because again, if we had got a Labour government, bear in mind you would have had Keir Starmer in the in the cabinet, you would have had Emily yeah. Thornbury in the cabinet, you would have had Wes Streeting in the shadow, you know, like or the sort of junior minister's post. So we would have had to pressure them from the outside anyway. So I think that yeah, if your understanding of politics, and this goes back to Miliband and others' critique of mm-hmm. Labourism, because because the Labour Party since its inception has convinced people that elections are what matter, yeah. are all that matters. And that's one of the fundamental problems of the Labour's tradition. But if that's how you understand politics, and if you think that socialism, or your understanding of socialism, is getting someone elected who might make a bit of a change, then again, nothing I say is going to convince you otherwise. Nothing you say is going to change your mind. If, on the other hand, you consider your politics to be socialist, consider your politics to be about challenging and undermining and transforming society to the point where we can overturn the capitalist mode of production and build an alternative, then you've no business in the Labour Party. You shouldn't be wasting your time or anybody else's time talking about proportional representation or Andy Bournem or anything else. There's <laughs> <laughs> two things there, really. Like, the first is one of the most damaging aspects for me about Labourism is specifically about, uh, it's not just this, like, uh, the anti-intellectualism, 
anti-intellectualism and you know, the imperialism and all that stuff is is fundamentally about the way of doing politics that it sort of inculcates in people like uh, a CLP has passed this motion it's sort of like obsession with proceduralism which I think is yeah. like rooted in the trade union movement but the other sort of deeper problem that sort of stems from laborism and like Fabianism as this top-down paternalist movement is it has and it does inculcate in people this idea that politics is something that happens to you you know you can't affect change and we just got to wait for someone to come and 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 you know, I got caught up in it as well, but the, it was manifested in Corbynism. It's like, you know, the Corbynism almost like a messiah figure. Like, we yeah. need this bloke to, to come and help us, like a figurehead. To, uh, it, was, it was very much like a top-down yeah, movement yeah. in terms of how it was going to affect change. And like we said, although it's been lost in the sort of bastardization of sort of actual working-class history in the UK, but, you know, all the institutions that have now since died, you see around us, all across the University of Manchester, in South Wales, and not just that, but the building of the NHS, you know, like working men's clubs, sports clubs. Yeah. Uh, minus like none of these things were like given to people and i think that's really important because somewhere along the line that sort of working class uh self-organization and organic way of doing things and just doing it which is would now be probably classed as sort of anarchistic that you know that that has all been lost and it's yeah. it's been transformed in in the popular imaginary to like this is something that was was given to these areas like by the welfare state and i think that's one of the most damaging aspects of it is the yeah. way it, it, it's a di- fundamentally disempowering way of thinking about the world and the next part paul was we haven't even we haven't even talked about the trade union because it's the labor movement isn't it and the mm. other there's a symbiotic relationship between the labor party and the trade unions and mm. and they're linked not just between labor link offices but there's an obvious you know they're de facto the same thing and one of the things you notice particularly on like the labor left is like almost like a fetishization of unions which in some ways is just rooted in this idea of class as culture so you can go join a union you know like i'm with class whatever but you know the trade unions are like as much of the problem and always have been and if you if you sort of slagged off trade unions i think that would be even more shocking to people than like the labor party but as a you know a former rep i have never felt i don't think in my life so depressed about politics as when i've engaged with the trade union hierarchy i don't think i've ever felt more powerless and impotent as coming out of trade union meetings and genuinely because it's like you know okay you've got a you've got an issue let's raise it uh blah 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 and then a, a year down the line emotion will go to conference and then possibly you know possibly that'll be voted on and then and i'm like oh, well then what happens it's adopted yeah. as a motion well yeah. what the fuck happens then and it's almost like you know i, I possibly view that as even a, a bigger problem because if we're building power outside you know extra parliamentary power and we need a strong labor movement i don't think people with all this stuff like join a union i don't think people really appreciate the extent to which like the the union bureaucracy the union hierarchy is like an act, active impediment to building working class power and always has been i mean i know there's smaller fighting unions popping up but how on earth do we actually transform the the union movement outside the no. labor party you know well that's a key point so so i think so one thing I'd say is that I think there's always a I think you're right <clears throat> that the the, com, the 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 combination of the trade unions and the Labour Party broadly speaking are the Labour movement lower yeah. lowercase L that's the sort of the composite elements of it but I think the trade union bureaucracy and trade unions are, are two different things two very distinct things you know what I mean um, the, both of us know of instances and have been involved in cases where trade union bureaucracies have frustrated the will of the membership within the unions and have been the conservative force in the face of much more militant unions so so I think it was a point I was trying to make throughout the discussion is that it's rank and file trade unionism that has to be the focus of it sort of again in the same way in which 
sort of small p politics shouldn't be about elections but should be about empowering people um martha harnaker and others uh the bolivian the mst movement in bolivia and elsewhere they have this term of protagonism and uh, the idea of people as the active makers of their own history mm-hmm. as opposed to the people to whom history just happens or is just handed down and that relates to your activity within a political organization if you are in a political organization but also within the trade union so again it's, it's interesting in the in um what's her name i can't remember the woman's name who wrote ramparts of resistance uh, about the trade union movement but she's got a statistic in it about uh, sheila robotham i think it is she's got a statistic in it about how um in the late 60s early 70s in britain 80 percent of strikes or something to that effect were unlawful so these were strikes where the workers decided to go on strike and i can imagine the trade union bureaucracy and all trying to put a lid on all that and trying to hold it back but the strikes went ahead this was also the sort of tail end of the period where workers had reasonable sort of wages in relation to the sort of um division of of wealth within society and so forth and and everything since in the 70s onwards has kind of been downhill with the thatcher revolution and and everything that sort of followed on it so the thing is is that it's about rebuilding trade unions at the grassroots level and again that can be used as a sort of um as a buzzword grassroots today but this literally means being active in your even if it's a shitty trade union like so i'm I'm in ucu which isn't a great trade union at all you know what i mean like it's um academics are not despite sort of self illusions about radicalism and so forth academics because of the material circumstances and because of the class background of so many of them are quite timid for the most part in the trade unions and and the trade union bureaucracy even with a slightly center left trade union bureaucracy isn't all that radical again it's disciplined by the existing uh, sort of uh, legal regime around sort of uh, strikes and so forth but you have to rebuild even within your own shit union right so if you're in let's say unison for example which is particularly bad at times if you're in unison and you've got a crap general secretary and you've got you know lots of problems you don't just go i'm going to go to a more left-wing seeming union and get involved there because they have a good twitter feed or whatever it is it literally means that the grassroots means working within your own branch building up the confidence of your own workers building up links with workers in your own sector but then in other industries where that's possible to do it supporting people through through sort of um linking up struggles uh support and strike funds you know building up that mutual confidence so it's a slow process right but that then will necessarily mean coming into conflict with the trade union bureaucracy because the trade unions again it's because it's because we as a class were defeated Uh, in britain the minor strike was a turning point but even before then there were there were heavy defeats that the labor movement suffered and it's because we were defeated that the trade unions especially at the bureaucratic upper levels have been co-opted into a broader system of human resource management effectively uh, is what they're involved in and there is still all this rhetoric and all these allusions to the Durham Miners Gala and so forth but for the most part trade union bureaucracies are about managing their own members and managing relationships with the, the sort of heads of industry the challenge for us is to rebuild an older tradition uh, but which has always persisted and you mentioned the IWGB and smaller unions who still demonstrate that of militant rank and file trade unionism but then linking that up to other struggles you know linking that up to other other struggles around housing other struggles around sort of public transport the climate struggle the campaign against the the policing bill and so forth connecting all those struggles together so that it's not become a doesn't become a narrow sort of syndicalist sectoralism it becomes a militant working class politics now, for all of this, we need organisation. Um, um, there are organisations, and, and some are better than others on, on the sort of broad British left, but we need newer forms of organisation that renovate some of the old ideas, that link up the existing struggles and start to build that alternative now. Uh, because, again, 
Jane McAlevey has a nice slogan, which is the idea of no shortcuts, right? And that's just the yeah, reality yeah. of it, right? Again, I'd, I'd love it if tomorrow we could sort of click our fingers and yeah. have a disciplined cater organization of 50,000 revolutionaries ready to go out and sort of, you know, help build the struggle. But we don't have that. What we do have, though, is the objective conditions which are radicalizing and forcing people to become uh, more militant and to look for alternatives. And unless we start building a movement that offers them that progressive alternative, that socialist alternative, unless we do that in a convincing way, well, then the right be, will win out. And whether it's the right in the Conservative Party or the right in the guise of the Labour Party, the right will win out and we'll speed towards very serious climate and societal breakdown, um, the consequences of which we can't fully really imagine, actually. I actually did the McAlevey organising course and I thought it was amazing, like mm-hmm. genuinely like inspiring. And it's interesting that she advises like getting off social media and yeah, yeah. doesn't put much faith in social media at all, yeah. which I thought was interesting. So one of the best things people could do is like to get off Twitter. And whenever I'm, you know, low, it's always like exacerbated or brought on by, you know, interactions with, on, on social media. Yeah. And then whenever you have interactions with like normal people you know the class instinct that people have the anger people have with the working class makes you realize as you said the objective conditions haven't changed in fact yeah. people are more pissed off than ever and uh, it's just a case of somehow harnessing that but like you know giving us plenty of ideas yeah. let's finish on a positive note paul have you got any any shout outs or anyone you, you know anything you want to sort of uh, a plug at all mate oh yeah so the, like again on on the positive side of it again we we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the the house of lords and again not the fucking around but the house of lords voted down a raft of amendments the government mm-hmm. was proposing to make the police bill even more draconian yeah. the house of lords wouldn't have done that if there hadn't been a mass movement that was on the streets that was pushing for this right so sometimes people within let's say for example the labor party will will disdain the idea of extra parliamentary forces but this shows a concrete example of it uh, and in the coming period because of this sort of burgeoning uh, crisis in living standards and so forth, organisations like the People's Assembly and others are mobilising now to build a movement around uh, fighting the rise in, in fuel prices, but also more generally fighting the cost of living and the living standards crisis. So this will emerge. The stuff in Unite is really promising. The Bakers Union disaffiliating Labour is really promising. Uh, even though I, I don't think electoralism should be the first port of call this new initiative where a number of groups have come together i think it's called the pal or something like that that can be useful you know what i mean like again just just people attempting to do things differently is important right now and there'll definitely be disappointments and there'll definitely be mistakes but we have no alternative in this context so whereas within the sort of labor's tradition the idea is there's no alternative to being within the labor party that's absolute nonsense if you're a socialist there's no alternative to tying up your shoelaces getting out there and getting the job done now because again we've got a massive massive challenge in front of us but what history has shown us time and time again is that there's this sort of subterranean forces that are moving beneath us. And even if it's not apparent, even though we don't have a perfect organization right now, we don't know what's going to spout up. And we as socialists and Marxists have to be there to take advantage of it and to sort of help contribute to it. I liked when Lenin uh, was going into Russia in, in early 1917 and wrote a letter to a friend where he basically said, this place is dead, man. There's nothing happening here. You know, this is a, this is a political backwater. And obviously by the end of that year, things have turned around. And I don't think we're on the cusp of a revolution in Britain, but we definitely have the conditions where we can build serious socialist movements and serious socialist organizations and in doing that we can begin to overcome the sort of legacy of the laborist tradition 
we will win. Thanks yeah, so much. Honestly, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure again. Anyone want to say hello to or? Jasmine, if she's listening here, a mutual friend, Jasmine, if yeah, she, yeah. she steps on and gives us a listen to say hello. Uh, but yeah, thanks for having me on, Dan. And keep up the great work. Top man. If he's so afraid to quit, why are you not leave a guy that he's pushing through cops and councils across Britain? In South Manchester, these Labour councillors are sitting on the council boards. They're, sta- they're sitting on the housing association boards that are telling people that they're going to be evicted. You know, they're saying that they're against the bedroom tax. In councils across Britain, they're speaking to the national press saying how much they're against the bedroom tax. They even signed petitions to come on demonstrations against it. But they're actually sitting on the boards that are sending people threatening letters, giving them threatening phone calls, and saying that they're going to evict them. If we want to build a movement against cuts, then we need to stand against these hypocrites. And that means that anyone here he thinks that the Labour Party represents any kind of an alternative, needs to be challenged. If we're going to build a movement in this country of working class people, it needs to be democratic in our communities. And it needs to stand against the likes of the opportunists who stand at the front of these demonstrations. These Labour councillors who talk about their history of supporting the struggle of working class people. You know, we can see their history of support of working class people in the present. Because they're attacking working class people. Manchester City Council as well has just brought in 80 million pounds worth of cuts. Yet they're left in Manchester, and when Owen Jones came to Manchester, they didn't challenge this. Yeah? Can I ask what you've actually done? Because we've spent all day sitting in there and discussing what we're actually going to do about it, while you've been standing out here whinging. To be honest, I, I, I did come inside, but. About 15 people out of an audience of a thousand were allowed to speak, so I didn't find it very democratic.